0: Good morning. Welcome to Valley Community Church. Would you stay standing with me? Make your way to your seats, but stay standing. We're going to read the word of the Lord together. Welcome to Valley Community Church. My name is Heath, one of the pastors here. It is good to see you all today. We uh, continue our exploration and meditations in the book of John today. We are in John chapter 7. We're going to read verses 37 through 39. It will be up here on the screens for you as well, so let's, let's give our heart and our mind to the word of the Lord. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us through your word and ultimately perfectly through the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, would you be gracious on us today? Would you help our hearts and our minds to, to hear you speak through your scripture by the power of your spirit, that Christ would be glorified, that you, Father, might be made known. So tune our affections and our attentions to you today. We're so thankful that we get to be here and hear your word. To sing songs with brothers and sisters. So we come in, in joy. But Father, we also come today with lament in our hearts and on our lips. Father, this world it groans and uh, there's, there's darkness. There's darkness. But you're greater than the darkness. You're our king. And so we lift up our laments to you today as, as our hearts are heavy with the recent shooting in Texas at the elementary school and the loss of life and the violence and the trauma and the radically changed worlds of all those families. And a Father... We ask um, in your great grace and your great mercy that you would take what was meant for evil and you would turn it to good. Without minimizing the, the pain, we praise you for being a God who can redeem and restore. So Father, do your healing work in that traumatized and fractured community in Uvalde. Here in California with the other shooting in the church and then in Buffalo, man. Father, we need you. And so it is with joy in our hearts alongside that grief that we come to you today and say, worthy are you, the Lamb who was slain. You are the one who redeems and restores. So thank you for your word of hope. Thank you for the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we offer up our laments and our praise to you today in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Y'all may be seated. We live in a thirsty world. The recent events just showing us the thirst that is deep in the soul of humanity. The thirst for for peace, for joy, for hope. We live in a thirsty world. We live in a world where the baseline human condition is dissatisfaction. A deep dryness of being, a discontented soul, a, a parched heart. Now some of us seek to satisfy this thirst with literal drinking... Drawing from the wells of Jim Beam or Jack Daniels, or drawing from the wells of Napa or Sierra Nevada. Not going to the great IM, but going to the many great IPAs. Yeah. I know it's bad. But we do this. We distract ourselves with food and drink to try to fill up some inner thirst that we have others seek to satisfy with long drafts from the shiny tap called success or power or popularity or pleasure and we also seek to satisfy the dryness with a cup of religion growing drunk on our own supposed powers of morality and ability but it doesn't work like the stomach is designed for food, like the human body that is composed of some 60% water needs water to flourish. The heart is fashioned for fulfillment, but it seems we can never quite quench, quench our dissatisfaction. Satisfaction so often seems like a mirage. And so, in the profound words of two unlikely theologians, I can't get no satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, Nick Jagger, Keith Richards, in case you don't know. Uh, By the way, that song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, is number two on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list. That's interesting, isn't it? Song number one, Bob Dylan, Like a Rolling Stone, called a hymn of a generation celebrating the search for freedom and meaning. And honestly, that list, when you go through it, and I read a good portion of it this week, and you go through the summaries of each song, it is a litany of longing. It is 500 pieces of art expressing the thirst that is deep within the human soul. Now, all too commonly, we misunderstand our thirst. We misdiagnose our desires. And so today, we address this thirst with some good news that Jesus drops at a pretty wild party. We should know that God's people are party people, by the way. God's people know how to drink deeply from joyous festivities. They know how to plan a party. They know how to enjoy a party. They know how to wrap up a party. They know how to look forward to planning another party, enjoying that party, and wrapping up that party. They're really good at it. Throughout the year, there are seven major holidays for the Jewish people that give rhythm, that give cadence to their entire year, that shape their imaginations. These festivities are anchor points. They are pillars in time that give shape to their year. And it's been said that the summary of every Jewish holiday is simply this. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Which is a really great summation when you think through all the festivities. Now when you think about it, these holidays, they exist because the people went through hardships, not because they didn't have hardships, right? These times of joy were born through adversity and pain, so they didn't party because things didn't go wrong. They partied because God is a God of promise and a God of provision, a God who is there with them that was leading them towards flourishing. So today's passage takes place at a holiday high point. It takes place amidst a loud and colorful and joyous seven-day party loaded with meaning. One that remembered what God had done in the past and one that looked forward to what God was about to do the next year. And so if we are to draw any of the joyful meaning out of what Jesus says here, we have to understand a little bit about a feast. So can we talk a little bit about this party? Let's, let's try to open this up and see what Jesus is getting at. So, um... Our text starts out with these words in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. What feast is this? What feast is this? Well, it is the seventh feast that took place in the seventh month of the calendar. and It was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or in Hebrew, Sukkot. Now, why is it called the Feast of Tabernacles? Of booths. Well, we'll get to that here in just a second. Let's look at the feasts um, so we can kind of get our bearing. Let's go ahead and look at that list of the seven feasts. So these are the seven feasts that run throughout a year. Passover. Uh, This is our our Easter, okay? Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, Passover um, is all incorporated, Easter is all incorporated in these first three. So Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. Those are the spring feasts. And then we move forward to the transition between spring and summer, which is the Feast of Weeks, uh, which we call Pentecost. This is 50 days after Passover, when they they shed the blood of of the lamb and painted the, the doorpost and had their Passover supper. Then you transition to fall feasts, and you have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. That is the one we are talking about Today, the seventh one. Okay, so this feast is the seventh one on the seventh month, and the day that we're on in this passage is the seventh day. Seventh feast, seventh month, seventh day. In other words, John is saying, pay attention. This is so important. Now, by the way, how do we know that this is the feast that is being spoken of? Well, because we need to read the scriptures in context. Always read verses in context context. So chapter 7 verse 2 tells us that this story takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you read chapter 7 in its entirety, all this stuff hangs together. So we need to understand the feast because it makes sense of what's going to happen here. So this feast took place uh, at the end of September, early October every year. Um, This was a party of parties, right? This is the crown jewel, okay? This is the crown jewel of the parties of the Jewish year, the holiday apex. A week-long party, seven days of joyous celebration. Now, why is it called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths? Well, it was called that because of these. This is a sukkah. Um, the plural is sukkot, and so it is called sukkot. The Feast of Booths. This is a temporary shelter. It was a, a tent or a tabernacle or a hut. Here's another one. This one's a little more fancy. Right. You're, you, this is the glamping version. Okay, um, Let's do the next one. So they, they put them up on balconies all over the place. If you drive through the streets of Jerusalem at, at the end of September, October, you see these everywhere. It's just like in December you drive and you see Christmas lights everywhere. For them you drive and you see these sukkahs everywhere. They're just everywhere. Now, during this holiday, these are... What the people are to live in and sleep in and, 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 and uh, eat in. They're to spend their week in this thing. Why? What's the point? What's, what's the meaning? Well, it's because this feast looks back to the time that Israel was in the wilderness. right? After, the, after leaving slavery in Egypt. They were to dwell in these booths all week. So they could always remember, and I quote from Leviticus 23 here, They would remember that the Lord made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when he had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the scriptures command this celebration. It reminds them of the time that they were moving, that they were living as those without a home. They were camping through the wilderness. So these tents remind the people that God took them out of slavery by his grace. He took them through the wilderness and then he took them to the promised land as their provider, as their protector. And during that time, he fed them, right? He fed them food, and he gave them drink, right? So this holiday looks back on his provision, but it also looks forward to future provision. Now, it's interesting. God commanded it, you know, how these booths were to be built. They were to be built with three different uh, branches, olive, palm, and myrtle branches. And in other words, they were Eden-like houses, They were Eden-like houses on the way to the promised land, mobile Edens, to remember where the people originally came from and where God was taking them to, to dwell with them again in a new Eden. Now during this week, this is a little bit odd, during this week people walked around with a lemon in one hand and branches in the other. So they're literally doing this all, all week long. So here's a picture. Um, the, the guy here has what's called a lulav in one hand. That's those three different branches myrtle, palm, and olive. Uh, you don't see it here in the picture, but he's actually holding a little lemon, or it's, it's called an etrog, but it's like a, it's a citrus in the other hand. That's weird, right? What's that about? Uh, well, uh, they would carry this branch around all week long, again, to remind of God's provision. And then that, that lemon like thing, to remind them that God produces fruit. And brings food forth. And he blesses us. So they walk around shaking these things. Um, And if you're not careful you get smacked with them. uh, When you're by the western wall. In fact let's look at the next picture. Um, uh, So I got smacked with one of those right here. When I took the picture. But you can see they're here praying. And they're shaking these things. Thanking the Lord for his provision. Symbols. Emblems of Eden in their hand. And how God provides. And how God protects. Now this week-long party uh, begins after the fall harvest came in. So the pomegranates are in, the figs are in, the, the dates are in, the grapes are in. And you know what that means. It's, it's good eating. Right? It's, it's going to be a good week. Good food. It's a happy, tasty celebration of God's provision that was meant to fill the people with joy. But what about the water, right? This whole thing, we, our passage is about water. What about the water and the thirst? Well, this festival took place at the end of the dry season, which means the rains needed to come back in order for more fruits to come, in, in order for the wine to be had the next year, in order for the celebration to come, in order for life to be had. More rain had to come. So part of this festival is looking forward and praying to God, would you provide for us again? Because without your rains and without your provision, we're dead. Remember, I mean, this is the Middle East that we're talking about. They need the rains for the crops. So, here's what they would do every day of this week-long, tent-dwelling, joyful feast. The priests would walk down from the temple to the pool of Siloam and fill a golden pitcher with water. They would dip this pitcher in the water, and while they were drawing that water, they would recite Isaiah 12.3, which was this. With joy, they will draw water out of the wells of salvation. That passage refers to when the Messiah comes. With joy, they will draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And then they take a long hike back up to the temple amidst cheering and chanting and the branch waving. It was a, a big parade lined with happy spectators. And if you recall, this might sound a little familiar to you, right? If you recall from a few weeks back, we looked at the man who was healed with the mud on his eyes. Do you remember that? Do you remember the pool of Siloam? Well, I showed you this following picture. Okay, this is the map so Jesus, when he healed that guy, talked to him up there by the temple, and that guy had to walk all the way down to the pool of Siloam. So it's about 2,080 feet. With a, a, there's a decline and in incline going on here. And this is the route the priests would take every day of this feast. They would start up at the temple. They would walk all the way down. They would get the water. They would walk up to cheering and chanting, and then they would b- walk back up to the altar. And then they would walk into the altar area, and there's a blast of trumpets. And then he would go up to the altar and it would be this like quiet, intense, anticipatory moment. And everyone's looking. And then he would pour the water into the altar. And then everyone would erupt in praise saying, save us, save us, help us, Lord. They'd be praying Psalm 118, oh Lord, save us. And then this excitement grew every day, right? More and more every day throughout the week. And then on the seventh day of this week, the text calls it the great day. The priest comes to the altar and he walks around the altar seven times. Anticipation is growing. It's a great drama. It's it's a theological theater. You walk around seven times like the walls of Jericho. And there was all these trumpet blasts. And the people's attention was now on the priest who had ascended the stairs and is ready to pour this water into the altar And then he poured in, and then the people would chant again, Save us, help us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'd take those branches, and they'd beat them on the ground until until all the leaves and palm fronds fell apart. It was a beautiful riot. It It was noisy, noisy praise. So here's what they did. They remembered God's provision in the past from the wilderness wanderings. They sought his provision for the future, for the next year. They celebrated the creator who brought rain and life and joy and this whole matter of the water celebration recalled when Isaiah the prophet said that the Messiah would come and the people with joy would draw water out of the wells of salvation. Big party. What's the point? Look at the brilliance of Jesus. Notice his perfect timing. It's precisely at this time that he cries aloud and says what he says. He waits for the drama to rise, right? The moment is loaded with theological and historical meaning. And so you can just imagine, I, I kind of picture it like, you know, when the ball's about to drop on New Year's Eve and there's the anticipation. And there's like almost that moment of silence before it drops and then it drops and everyone's like, woo, you know? There's this moment of, of silent anticipation when the water is, is about to be, be poured. And at that point, or while it's being poured, Jesus stands up and cries aloud and says, If anyone's thirsty, come to me. Look at verse 37 and 38. Jesus stood up and he cried out, If, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What did Jesus just do? What in the world just happened? Question. Who were the Jewish people thanking and praying to regarding the abundance that had come because of the rains? God. Yahweh. Jesus. Just claimed that he is the one who provides the waters of life. He has just made a claim that he is the creator. More so, he just claimed that he is the one which the joy, joyful waters of salvation will come through. He is the long promised Savior from Scriptures. More so, he just claimed that through him the Spirit is given. He is the one through whom the Spirit of life comes this is a moment. He just claimed that the soul's deep thirst is satisfied in him. Only Jesus satisfies our soul's thirst. And also, he also claims that the Feast of Tabernacles is ultimately about him. He's saying, all this, you want to know how to truly feel satisfaction, how God truly provides for you, it's it's through me. So this whole feast, all of these centuries has led to pointing to Jesus. And more so, as the apex feast, by implication, he has claimed that the seven feasts of the year are about him. Now, have you ever thought about this? I know this is a little bit nerdy here, so this is a quick aside. But have you ever thought about this? God embedded an outline of salvation through his Son in the yearly object lessons of these seven feasts. God wanted his people to be a party people to teach them the way of salvation that Jesus would come and fulfill to unleash heavenly waters on the dry souls of humanity. He put rhythms in their year to reveal what redemption was going to be like. He was shaping their imaginations for centuries so they could see the Messiah when he came. Look at this. Let's go to the, the feasts here. Passover. What happened on Passover. Jesus died. The feast of unleavened bread, when corruption is put away, when yeast, which is considered corruption, is put away and is hidden and is buried, Jesus is buried. First fruits is the day of Jesus' resurrection. First fruits where when the first fruits came out of the ground, it showed more life was going to spring up. Jesus is called the first fruit because he is the first of the resurrection and all those who love and trust him will then also be resurrected and spring up from the ground like the crops. Forty days after after Passover, you have Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. That's when the harvest came in and the law was given back, back in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the spirit is sent on Pentecost. The upper room, the fires of heaven come down and the the breath of heaven comes down and it fills the people of God. Now they have his spirit living within them. So those are all fulfilled. And these other ones now are, are pa- partially fulfilled, being fulfilled, trumpets. That was Rosh Hashanah, which was the, the head of the year, the new year. It's the time of the new beginnings when you took stock of your life. You reassessed and you entered into a new way of renewal because of what God had done. And then the Day of Atonement. This was when the the priests went into the inner sanctum which no one could go to be in the very presence of God to deliver the sacrifice so that it could be an at-one-ment with God and his people that they could dwell together. Christ's sacrifice has brought union. The temple veil has been torn. Now we can be together at one. The tabernacles, joyous celebration of salvation, of provision, and flourishing Eden renewed. Do you see the outline of salvation, what Jesus has done and is continuing to do in these feasts? God was working on the people century after century, not just giving them random things to do to keep busy, but the love and the intentionality to create a way that they could enter into body, mind, soul, like tongue, like eyes, everything, so that they could see who He is and what He's doing that we needed. A Savior. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's just stunning. All along, the whole history of salvation, all the scriptures have pointed to the coming Messiah. The one that we are to drink from and have eternal life. It's good news. It's good news. And in these words that Jesus says, we see a distillation of the gospel. I mean, think about it. He says, if anyone thirsts, everyone thirsts if anyone thirsts he's saying y'all thirst right everyone thirsts if anyone thirsts we need to know our need we all have a need we all have a deep thirst that we cannot satisfy on our own if anyone thirsts then what come to me respond to god's grace that has first come to us he first came to his people And he spoke good news over them. He spoke love to them. He first loved them and they were to then in like kind respond in love and trust. The good news comes to us and we are to respond. Then drink. Come to me and drink. That's trust. That's, That's obeying him. That his life might live within us. And then ultimately what does that lead to? Waters that will flow out through us. We are transformed. The spirit will move through us. That's the gospel. An outline. So you could say the big idea of the sermon this morning. The sermon in a sentence is this. Only Jesus satisfies our soul's thirst. Only Jesus satisfies our soul's thirst. Because only through Jesus and his work and his sacrifice are we given the spirit of God that draws us into union with God that we might know the joy of our creator and what it means to be his image bearers. So just as our physical bodies couldn't survive without H2O so too our spiritual being could not survive without the spiritual water of the spirit alive within us by his grace. Now C.S. Lewis spoke to this in a really helpful and lucid way. And so I'm going to read a chunk of what he said. I'm not going to put it up here because it will be too much text. But just, just listen and follow along this, this uh, rationale. Listen to this argument that he makes. I think it's really helpful given what we just talked about. This is from um, the radio talks that became Mere Christianity. If you haven't read that, I suggest you pick it up. Um, it's, it's incredibly helpful and beautiful. Here's what he says. He says, Most people if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject, that excites us. Our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. The real thing. So what is it? What is this it that he's speaking of? What is this deep desire? See, there is a thirst beneath our thirst for pleasure. There's a thirst beneath our thirst for power. There is a thirst beneath our thirst for popularity. There's a thirst beneath our thirst for companionship. There's a thirst beneath our thirst to purchase, to stockpile, to accumulate, to hoard. St. Augustine knew the answer, and he's famously said this. God, to worship you is the deepest desire of humanity. For you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest and fulfillment in you. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest and fulfillment in you. So in other words, to know God, to be known by Him, that's it. That's the stuff. That's it. The deepest thirst, the deepest thirst of the soul is to love and to be loved by God. Yet over And over again, the ache of our deep soul thirst has us drinking from all sorts of wells that that are not Jesus Christ, wells that will never satisfy, wells that we drink from, and in the long run, we are now thirstier, we are now worse off, right? Every well that is not Jesus Christ that we drink from in an ultimate kind of satisfy me kind of way, well, it's... It's like drinking from from the sea. It's like drinking salt water. And when we go to wells of pleasure, wells that promise power, wells that promise popularity, it is like drinking salt water. So you can imagine how this goes, by the way. You're shipwrecked, right? There you are, floating in the open sea, dying of dehydration. And after uh, uh, enough hours, after enough days, momentarily, momentarily, it will feel good to take a drink of that water. You lean over the raft and you take a gulp of that water, right? Sandpaper throat, liquid on it. It's going to feel good for a moment. But you have just worsened your condition and started a spiral down, right? Because the necessary excretion of the salts in that seawater steals the water from within your cells. So the more that you drink, the more you will have to excrete, and then it actually draws the water out of your body. So with each successive drink, you multiply your thirst. With each successive drink, you multiply your thirst. This is exactly why a man who's floating on a beautiful sea with the best view in the whole world can die of thirst. And this is exactly why so many of us are floating on the beautiful sea here in Pleasanton, California, the beautiful sea of success and the beautiful sea of power and the beautiful sea of pleasure and companionship and stuff, living a life with the most beautiful view, yet our soul is dehydrating and dying day by day with each successive drink from the wells that we keep going to. This is why some of you feel emptier and more lonely after sleeping with that beautiful stranger. Best just to delete that app right now. This is why some of you feel hollowed out the more you turn to food and drink to deal with the past trauma and the ever-present pain. This is why some of you feel lower than ever after that last high and that last hit you had because it will only carve you out. And this is why some of you feel so vacant And so sad with that next promotion, with that next stretch goal, that next reach goal, and that next big purchase, when you get it, you realize it did nothing to slake your thirst. This is why Bono sings, right? I've crawled, I've scaled these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've kissed honey lips. I felt the healing in her fingertips, a burn like fire, this burning desire, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And regarding our text today, Jesus knew that all those who were there on that day, all those who were drinking from the wells of of tradition and the feast, all those who would need water for the next year and the food to come in, he knew that only one thing would bring them the life that they sought after, and it was him. And then here's this beautiful bit that that I think we need to recognize. See, when, when you love Jesus the most, then you will love others the best. That might sound a little bit weird at first, but when you love Jesus the most, you're going to love others the best. In verse 38, he says, Out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water. In other words, if you go to Jesus as that ultimate well for your satisfaction and your flourishing, then you now will be a conduit of life to all those who are around you because the Spirit is within you and flowing through you. When you know that the true well of salvation is Jesus, then you can actually truly begin to enjoy the pleasure that he brings you, the power and the positions that he grants you, the companionship and the stuff that he in his mercy gives you, right? Why? Because you haven't put on them the burden of being your God. You haven't demanded the impossible out of these things with, within creation. So they can be beautiful. They can be good in accordance with the way God has designed them. Food can be food. Sex can be the gift of sex and covenantal union. A spouse can be a spouse, not a God that you are going to crush with an unbearable burden because they're simply not God. A job a job can be taken away and you can still have joy because that job was just a job and not your savior. But if that job was your identity and now you're retired or it was taken away and you don't know who you are anymore, your savior is gone and you are left alone. But if Jesus is our savior, then that job's a job. That's a gift. So when you love Jesus most, you're freed now to enjoy all the gifts that he's given you. You can love others best If Jesus' love is in you. Now, I want to bring this to a a close. Um, And in order to do so, we need to look at verse 39 and understand what's going on here. So, verse 39 Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, let's connect some dots here. He, this, uh, this water that he's talking about, this, this um, flowing water of eternal life, this comes because of the Spirit. He's speaking of the Spirit. So it's the Spirit that gives satisfaction to this, the human soul because the Spirit within us means we are drawn into union and relationship with, with God. It means union with Him. It means we can now abide with Him. It means that we are now empowered to obey Him. But what we need to understand is that this is only possible through one way. In order to have the Spirit, like the text says here, Jesus had to be glorified. Now what in the world does that mean that Jesus had to be glorified? Yeah, some of you are mouthing it. He had to be lifted up. What was he lifted up on? The cross. He's speaking of the cross. This is talking about his crucifixion. Jesus had to die. He had to be struck so that we could drink from the living waters. No cross, no tomb, no resurrection, no spirit given. That's a problem. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to put one final touch on understanding this water ceremony and why what Jesus said is so brilliant and perfect. Okay? Remember, this Feast of Tabernacles celebrated God's provision during what time of their history? The wilderness wanderings, right? The wilderness wanderings. And in the wilderness, he provided water. In Exodus chapter 17, um, after God had shown gracious provision over and over to these people, um, the whole lot of them grumble against him, mistrust him. But instead of of zapping them like the ungrateful and sinful lot they are, he does this. Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verses five through six, God says to Moses, pass on before the people, Make a big deal of this. Make sure everyone knows what's going on. Go through the people. This is going to be an event. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So Moses is a pass through all the people the whole lot of grumblers, to go to a rock where God will stand on that rock. And what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to hit it. He's supposed to smash it, right? But don't forget that God is here. His presence is there on the rock. He is to strike at the rock with the wooden staff and waters come out. Put that together. He is to strike at the rock that is the presence of God with a piece of wood, and the result is waters come out to nourish those who have sinned against him. But you see that? This is the cross of Jesus. So at the beginning of Israel's 40-year wanderings through the wilderness, God commanded Moses to strike the rock so that the, the thirst-quenching waters would be miraculously provided to an untrusting people. That's the beginning of their wilderness wanderings. Go to the end of their wilderness wanderings. Numbers 20, at the end of those 40 years, there's a similar event. The people are grumbling again. And God says, hey Moses, speak to the rock. And what does Moses do? He hits the rock and then water comes out and blesses the people who were sinning against God. To put this together now, the first rock in Exodus 17 is this beautiful foreshadow of the Lord Jesus being struck on the the cross producing life-giving water for those who rebelled against him. The second rock in Numbers is a shadow of the risen ascendant Christ who is seated at the throne of grace for whom we now as believers only have to pray, only have to speak to him and say, Jesus, help me. I'm dry. Fill me up today. I can't do this Monday. I can't do this crisis. I can't deal with another shooting. I can't. We pray to him. He doesn't have to be crucified again. We speak to him and his spirit ministers to us. Here is the brilliance of Jesus' dramatic timing about his announcement. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Because the other thing I didn't tell you is that throughout that entire week of the Feast of Tabernacles, they're studying the scriptures. And some of the main texts that they're reading that week are the rock that was struck. They're, they're reading Exodus 17. They're reading Numbers 20 all week long. And so when Jesus gets up and says, come to me and drink, He's calling himself the one who is struck, the one who will be struck down, that they might be lifted up. Isn't that incredible? And if you think I'm just making that up and like tying connections together, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, he says it exactly. He says, Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. Jesus is the rock that was struck. He's the one that takes the hit for the grumbling, quarrelsome, sinful people and in being struck, the waters of life pour out. Jesus had to go to the cross to die, to rise again, conquering sin, Satan, and death, rising and giving us his spirit so that we would have eternal life. He had to be glorified so that we could be satisfied. Only Jesus satisfies our soul's thirst. And so if you have a parched heart, if you don't know this Jesus, I pray you drink deeply from his waters today. Would you drink deeply from his grace? And if you're a follower of Christ, let's just put away those saltwater wells that are destroying us. So may we drink deeply from the fountain of good news, from the well that comes to us from beyond the walls of this world. May we love him the most so we can love others the best. Heavenly Father, You are good to us, you are gracious, thank you for your love and your grace. And I want to thank you for your word, and how you have designed history, and how you have sculpted traditions, and so many things that we see in scripture to point us to Jesus. You've taken tangible things to point us to this deep spiritual truth, and so it is when we come to this table today. So we love you. Father, would you satisfy us today? with the life and the joy that we find in your Son. Amen.